Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Man, I am really excited about today's episode. I'm talking to Drew Friedman and his new book from Fanagraphics, More Heroes of the Comics. Uh, these are biographical and visual representations of great creators from the Golden Age. Uh, Heroes from the Comics was the first volume, and it had the obvious people in there, people like uh, Stan Lee, Gil Kane, Jack Kirby, uh, Murphy Anderson, you know, Golden and Silver Age heroes. But uh, in this volume, it's a few more of the uh, forgotten creators that still had uh, interesting contributions to comics' golden age. Drew's a great satirist. You can uh, look at his past works at magazines like Heavy Metal, National Lampoon, Mad Magazine. Uh, he's also worked with uh, some of the underground greats from Art Spiegelman and Robert Crumb. Uh, he and his brother Josh uh, did some uh, very wicked parodies back in the day, and we talk a, a bit about those. And, of course, uh, their famous father, uh, Bruce J. Friedman, who wrote Splash, the original Heartbreak Kid, and a wonderful play called Steam Bath. But we also just talk about uh, old pop culture because uh, Drew is uh, one of us in terms of the people that really like to hunt down interesting old pop culture and uh, memorabilia from that period as well. Uh, Drew calls himself a traveler. And you might remember when I had Frank Santo Padre from the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, uh, he as well referred to it as a traveler. And I, and I was very nice. Both guys said, oh, it's always nice to meet a fellow traveler. But, you know, if you're an old pop culture person, uh, pre-internet pop culture person, you know what it's like in terms of hunting down funny, obscure movies or TV or memorabilia representing that stuff, the toys of your youth. You know, in that pre-internet world, it really was a hunt to find that stuff. Drew is one of those guys. In fact, uh, he is in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign about a documentary uh, on uh, Drew's work, but also uh, Drew's uh, collecting of pop culture, I think, over the years. So uh, it's a really neat uh, documentary, and I really want to see this happen. So uh, pay attention and uh, check out the trailer at Kickstarter. And also, well, we give you links. Chico Needs the Money, or Chico Needs the Money, is uh, the website to go to uh, to see the trailer, as well as the Kickstarter uh, pages. So check that all out, and enjoy this conversation with Drew Friedman on today's Word Balloon. It's uh, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your wonderful support uh, through Patreon to subscribe to my show. Word Balloon is free, but if you want to help the cause, um, think about it. Uh, the average comic book maybe takes you 15 minutes to read. I try to give you at least six episodes every month of uh, entertainment. So if you can spare the price of a comic book, a dollar a month, uh, that's terrific. You can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or right there on the front page of wordballoon.com. There's a Patreon ad. You can click to that, and that will take you to my page. Thank you very much for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades. At InStockTrades.com, it's December, and there are great deals waiting for you at InStock Trades on things like uh, the Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Heroes for Hire trade paperback. Uh, lots of great people have uh, contributed to the uh, Power Man and Iron Fist uh, combination. And certainly when they uh, opened their offices to more heroes for hire, the stories only got more interesting. This is a 312-page trade paperback, and it's 50% uh, off, only $12.49. You can get the sensational She-Hulk by John Byrne. Uh, man, what a great run, a historic and funny. Uh, this collects uh, She-Hulk 31 to 46 and 48 to 50, um, it is 464 pages, 50% off, just $19.99. You're going to find great books for yourself and possibly uh, some uh, great ideas for holiday gifts at InStockTrades.com. 
Great prices, great books, and they're waiting for you at In Stock Trades. All right, let's uh, talk to uh, Drew Friedman and talk about uh, more heroes from the comics, his new Fantagraphics book that is out next week. Here's Drew Friedman, now on Word Balloon. Happy to welcome uh, Drew Friedman back to Word Balloon. It's been a, been a long time, but you got a couple uh, interesting books out and a couple projects, and I'm happy to talk about them today. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, John. It's great to be back with you. Very excited about the second Fantagraphics uh, book, More Heroes of the Comics. Am I saying the title right? Yeah, that's basically it. More Heroes of the Comics. It's okay. the sequel to uh, he- sequel to Heroes of the Comics. Indeed. So uh, that's the, that's that's my new book, and um, I think it's it comes. Uh, it's not officially out yet. It, the official release date, at least the Amazon release date, is December sixth, which is coming up in a few yeah. days. Yeah, and I mean that's that that was my hope was to you know have us talk before it came out. They kept pushing it back because um, well, and of course you were not you were kind enough to send me a a, a digital copy of the book and. Um, well, I'll, make, I'll mention why I was pushed back, and this is, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned this to a few people, but uh, the fact is that it was on a, it was on board a ship. Uh, it was part of a billion dollars worth of cargo that was like um, on board a, sh- a ship, and due to an unpaid tax bill, and it wasn't a tax bill that Fantagraphics owed, um, they couldn't uh, unload that that shipment. So it's it sat in, at sea. That my book and about five other Fantagraphics books. Uh, for for weeks and weeks until the you know they finally arrived in New York uh, and they unloaded it so that's why it, it's been delayed it was originally due out in October so it's finally coming out in December but you okay. know it's still a good book it's still a good book and I'm still proud of it <laughs> <laughs> it is a good book and you should be proud of it that's great man honestly um, I kind of think there's a disconnect um, and there aren't as many books about uh, golden age writers I mean you know Roy Thomas has that wonderful magazine Alter Ego. And he does mm-hmm. uh, with Tomorrow's, and they do interviews. But um, I don't think a lot of people, younger people, and certainly newer uh, readers of comics, uh, know a lot beyond Siegel and Schuster, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, of course. And it's great that both volumes really are a wonderful showcase of all these great, you know, Golden Age cartoonists and writers. Thank you. Well, first of all, Roy is a is a bit, is a friend, and he's been help, very helpful with these books. He's given me. Some uh, some photo reference that I've used, and also put me in touch with a couple of people. And I actually met Roy when I was a kid because when my dad worked up at Magazine Management, which was, of course, the company that that owned Marvel Comics. My dad's boss was Martin Goodman, who was also Stan Lee's uh, wife's cousin's. Uh, no, I got it re- reversed. Okay, Martin Goodman's uh, wife's cousin was Stan Lee, of course. So, um, but anyway, I knew Roy back uh, when he was working at Marvel in the late '60s because I used to visit my dad up there when I was a kid, and then I was an intern up at Marvel in the early in early '70s for a week. And, and Roy was Roy was very nice to me then too. So we've kept in touch. But um, yeah, we kind of have that same like uh, that same fascination with the early creators, and, and especially you know with the second book, a lot of people that people either have never heard of or have forgotten. Um, or you know, a lot of these people were new to me as well when I was working on this book. Um, cross-referencing, looking up one person, and then it would lead to somebody else. I'd say, "Oh, I got to look into this person." And so there's a lot of people in there. I've heard from a couple of comics experts, like Danny Fingeroff, et cetera, who mm-hmm. had never heard of like at least a dozen people in this, in this new book. So it's different than the first book, which was more the cream of the crop and the people you would expect, like Kirby and Joe Simon and Stan Lee and. Bob Kane and, and that group. Yeah, and the, no, you, absolutely. There are a lot of names that I hadn't heard of. It's also great to see, too, that 
there are a few women in there as well in both volumes and uh and i'm and i'm blanking now but who was the woman i know that worked in the eisner studio i don't know if you you can recall by well sure that was um um that was audrey bloom yes who you know she had a brief career in comics in the early 40s first she worked for eisner Iger, and then she switched over to work for eisner uh, during this, doing the spirit, and when Eisner went to war, she like kind of took over the duties as writer. That's cool. But then she got married, and, and supposedly she had an affair with Eisner doing this too. Wow. He chronicles, he chronicles in his book, The Believer, which you know I assume you have that book, The Believer. No, uh, The Dreamer. Sorry, The Dreamer. The Dreamer, certainly. I remember that. That's a that's a great yeah. autobiographical uh, Eisner book from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So is that the, the woman that, graphics? I can't remember. No, that wasn't fanographics. I don't think probably Gary Dark would have published. Then. Yeah, probably. I think I'm Dark assuming. Was, yeah. yeah. But um, the woman that I, that the character has an affair with is based on Audrey Bloom, and, and again, she was a, a Jewish female writer, early comics writer, one of the first ones, if not the first one, who worked for Main Street Comics, and she's in this book, as well as um, uh, a few others, some um, that are kind of oddball choices, including um, uh, the woman who wrote um, Strangers on a Train, uh, um, yeah, her name is escaping me right now. Yeah, yeah, but, that's amazing. Yeah, the Hitchcock film, absolutely, man. Yeah, well, she worked and uh, Patricia Highsmith. Yes, she worked again, and you know, worked for Timely in the early '40s, and she wrote Captain America and Jack Buster Johnson, if you remember that one. Um, <laughs> I that character, I love it. <laughs> not so PC anymore, but she wrote that. She wrote for that, and. and and, you know, when uh, after after the war, she just switched over. She started writing books, and she wrote Strangers on the Train in the late 40s. And, you know, the rest is history. Also, the talented Mr. Ripley and uh, A Pinch of Salt, I think it's called. And that became the, the book called Carol, which was a recent movie. But anyway, she started her career in comics, as did Nikki Spillane, of course, who worked yes. also for Timely Comics, wrote for Captain America. And then, you know, switched over to writing his novels later on. So there are people like that, people that... You know, most people uh, wouldn't remember even worked in comics. And then, like, some super obscure people who just, like, you know, never, didn't even get credit. I mean, their names were never even, never even appeared in, in a comic book. Like, as you know, people worked with, like, various pseudonyms back then. You know, that's like, uh, it was rare that, you know, anybody knew who was do, drawing Batman or writing Batman, aside from the name of Bob Kane. And, of course, he did very little uh, on the actual product. Well, and I remember uh, talking to Gene Cullen before he passed away, and he was Adam Austin at DC because he was working for both publishers, DC and Marvel, or National and Atlas maybe at the time, and didn't want the other company to know about it. So, Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. These the, oh. comic, the companies were very protective of the artists, so they didn't really want their names out there. Gene Cullen, of course, is in this book. And he's like one guy I wanted to include in the first book. In fact, I sketched him out, and I wasn't happy with it, so I put it, put it aside which is one of the reasons I did the second book, because there were um, a lot of people uh, that I felt bad about not including, because I was limited to about 85 for the first book, and finally my deadline approached, and it had to be handed in. So I left out people like Nick Carty, which I felt bad about, mm-hmm. and Gene Colan, and Sheldon Maldoff. I mean, there's a long list um, of people like Irv, Irv Novick and Bob Wood, who's actually the final uh, portrait in this in the new book, Bob Wood, of course, from Crime Does Not Pay. So I, I had this growing list, and then people were saying, well, why didn't you include you know, such and such and such and such? So I realized I had enough for a sequel, and, um, and the, the first book sold well enough to warrant a sequel. So, cool. you know, so here it is. Man, I'm hoping, uh, much like uh, 
old Jewish comedians. We might get a third book and everything. Cause you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I never say never anymore. And I, I still have a list of people. I, I wasn't I'm able sure. to include one. One is Dorothy, um, uh, Wolf- 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 yeah, Wolf- yes. Now the reason I, the reason I left her out, she was the first female editor, you know, mainstream comics for, I guess for national, but I left her out because I wanted the book to close with Bob Wood because his was the most notorious story, you know, involving murder and depravity and uh, and all that kind of. So I thought that the book closing out with with him was just something I wanted to do. So Dorothy would have come after him because the book is alphabetical. Yes. So I said, no, let me just hold off on that. Plus, I didn't really want to draw all that hair on her head. She had a giant <laughs> bouffant. And I said, do I really want to sit here and render all that hair? <laughs> and also, uh, the other thing was there wasn't great reference on it. There were two images like that are online. You can see them right now of her. Um, at up at the DC offices, uh, and but I tried to touch base with her daughter, who's a best-selling uh, author, novelist, and wow. Paul Levitz actually helped. Paul Levitz tried to help me out with uh, getting me getting in touch with her too. One thing I didn't want, really want to do with with the, this book or the first book or my Jewish comedian books was to have to contact family members of, the, of these people and like bother them about getting me photographs. I mean, it's my project. I didn't really want to inflict, you know, my. Um, project on these you know these people out of the blue with it with a couple of exceptions and we'll discuss one of them in, in a few minutes but um anyway so if i do a third book dorothy wolfuck will certainly be in there but right now i have no plans to do that <laughs> i wonder if your fear of drawing a bouffant did that ever keep you from drawing like margaret thatcher or anybody like that because I would imagine uh, you I, might have that opportunity given all the publications you've drawn for. I have drawn like people with lots of hair. I drew. I think I drew Margaret Thatcher years ago for Spy Magazine, maybe or, or something like. that. So I have. You know, sometimes if it's an assignment, you just have to take the assignment. You gotta. You gotta go there. But you know, at this stage of my life, it's like, do I really want to sit here and, and render her bouffant for a couple, you know, for a day at least? And and it was really a lot of hair. It wasn't just like you know, like a Nancy Reagan bouffant or something. Okay. It's like a lot of hair. A lot of hair on her head. You know, like twice twice the size of her actual head was her hair. And I just didn't feel like I didn't feel like taking that on. <laughs> That's hilarious. She, you know, honestly, she's a fascinating person because she was in charge of like the DC romance books. And man, her career like lasted through the seventies, which is kind it, of cool. It, yeah, you know, it did, it did, it did. And you know, I have about I think about ten women in this book. I mean, certainly there weren't a lot of women who worked in that industry, in the early comic yes. book industry. My book covers, you know, the first, the, both books cover people who entered that world in 19, in the mid-30s when, you know, the first issue of New Fun appeared and Famous Funnies, the original comics, to the mid-50s when EC Comics ended and, you know, the, the Comics Code was, uh, it came along and then comics, to my, to my mind, became somewhat sanitized. And I kind of lose interest in, in that world at that point, although there's like certainly great things that happened over the next decade or two. Sure. So I, um, I, I was fascinated by your forward in terms of the books that you gravitated to. And it's funny because uh, obviously you weren't alone. Uh, you had, you talk about a passion for the Jimmy Olsen books of the 50s as well and 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. And I mean, I, I you know, I kind of came to those uh, a little bit later in those uh, 80 page giants and 100 page spectaculars of the 60s and 70s. And that's when I, you know, really most of the 70s, that's when I started reading. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the Jimmy Olsons especially because they just got so weird, and they were just like doing anything with them, turning him into a wolfman and, and a giant or a Nazi or you know or or the Planet of the Planet of the Capes, which I actually loved. You know that series in the late sixties was which was written by Jim, a young Jim Shooter. I think he was seventeen. But I always love that. Yeah, um, the Jimmy Olsons I, I love because they just went beyond just like superhero adventures. They just t- took this redheaded you know cub rec- reporter and just did anything with them. You know, they, just any kind of situation. And I kind of adapted that when I was doing comics for heavy metal. And that's why I would have um, the incredible shrink, the, the, the incredible shrinking Joe Franklin or Attack of the Giant Stinky, Joe Besser, and yes. uh, things like that. I would just take these people from, from the past and just, like, you know, kind of go go from, you know, take off from the Jimmy Olsen the comics, you know, weirdly, as weird as that sounds. but. <laughs> No, it worked, man. Absolutely. We talked. We talked about the uh, incredible shrinking Joe Franklin. I forgot about Stinky Joe Besser. I got to interview him uh, in the very early '80s when I was still in high school and precocious, and wow. kind of doing what wow. Tom Bergeron yeah, did with uh, the Stooge interviews. And I got to interview him and then a Stooge director, Fred Burns or Ed Burns. Oh uh, yeah, sure. That's so, great. You know, I, I had several opportunities to talk to Joe Besser. He was like sent my brother Josh a couple of letters in the early '80s, but. You know, I t- you take things for granted. Like, well, you know, he'll be around, and then he wasn't around. But you know, I did, I do have, I did visit, I did visit Emil Sitka, who was this, you know, Stooges straight man. Yes, for a I, t- years. I got to interview him as well. Please go on. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. So I went, to, I went to his house with some friends, and we got great pictures. And 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 you know, so like, I, I I still feel I regret that I never got to visit Larry Fine when he was seeing people. Like people were visiting him, and, and when he was at the old actor's home in Hollywood. Yes, or outside of Hollywood in the early 70s. And, and so many people I know went to visit him and they posed for photos. And I was out there at the time, you know, with my dad when he was on assignment in Hollywood. But I, I didn't do that. The, the one guy we did visit was Groucho Marx. We went to his house and spent the day there. And that was that was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, your dad, you know, we talked about that, too. Your dad, you, and, you know, was kind of friends with him. You got to go a few times when you were a kid, right? Well, we went once to his house. My dad, like, kind of traveled in the same circles as Groucho's girlfriend, whose name was Erin Fleming. She's kind of notorious now because she's yes. smack him, smack him around, whack him around a little bit. But we never saw that. We saw a different side of her. But they traveled in the same circles. They had similar friends, and she got along with him at the time. So he, she invited us to his house uh, for the day. I actually met Groucho, or encountered Groucho twice before then in New York at uh, the show, the at the show Minnie's Boys which was the mm-hmm. show about the Marx Brothers. And I said, Groucho was there in the audience every night. So I approached him and had him, had him sign my playbill. And then uh, at a party, like two years later, for um, Groucho was doing ads for Teacher's Scotch. If you remember those ads, full-page ads, they got George Burns and Jack Benny and Groucho, old comedians, to pose with this lousy Scotch, Teacher's Scotch, <laughs> and Groucho. So they had a party, a cocktail party for him in New York. My dad was invited and brought me along. And that's when I, you know... Actually, my dad's movie, The Heartbreak Kid, had just come out. So Groucho like connected my dad's name to the, you know, to the guy who, who the the movie was is based on my dad's story. So so Groucho was saying, I love The Heartbreak Kid. I just saw it, you know. So he like connected. So that's when you know I like went up to Groucho, I was just staring at him basically, and then and then we went to his house in '75 when he was 85, and he had had several strokes. He was really slowed down, and uh, that was an amazing day. Um, for my brothers and I, and my brother Josh wrote about it for New York Magazine Experience, and my brother Kip has written about it as well. So um, someday I'm going to draw it or do, do a comic strip about it, I think. Oh, that'd be <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I would love and to see that. That's a wonderful memory, yeah. Aaron Fleming that's, is that's... in every... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, please. No, no, I was done. Aaron Fleming is in everybody, uh, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, 
but we're afraid to ask. Yeah. And she is There's a brief part. Topless, yeah. right? You yeah. know, I forgot if it was <laughs> topless or not, but I just know uh, it's the scene where uh, Felix Unger's from the brain and uh, Woody is the That's insecure right. sperm. And she's, yep. you know, uh, the camera is the point of view of the man and he's looking at Aaron Fleming, the woman, as they're about yeah, to have sex. Right. So, yeah. That's right. I don't think she was topless, actually. I take that back. I think she was wearing a bikini top. But um, she was, you know, Woody was, Woody Allen was also part of that circle of Groucho friends and like Dick Cavett and stuff. So Aaron Fleming was part of that world. And, you know, so there she is in that film. And she pops up in maybe a few other films or TV shows briefly and stuff. But, yeah, only so we only saw the good side of her. She was very sweet. She was like singing with him at the party when we were there all day. We were there okay. singing along with him his old song. So we only saw we didn't see the dark side, but I certainly know about it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I I know a book. Uh, the in fact, you know, you've been uh, regularly on uh, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, semi regularly. And uh, when you well, I, I've been on it three three times. Yeah. Only three. That's it. Yeah, I think they wow. they mention my name because. Frank Frank is one of my oldest friends, so my name pops up. I've been on three, you okay. know, but that, I think I hold the record for most <laughs> podcast appearances on the Gilbert Godfrey podcast. Well, so. <laughs> I, I had I've had Frank on. I had Cliff Nesteroff on the show as well, promoting his book. And uh, no, I love when you pop on, man, because again, as based on our brief few minutes here and stuff, you're a font of uh, great, uh, you know, Hollywood trivia and and just live experiences with a lot of these interesting people. And I, you know, I. I, I'm, we're going to talk about your uh, the documentary that's uh, being made in, in a Kickstarter that's going on. Actually, let's talk about that now, real fast, because and we'll get back to the book because I want to hear about who you uh, who you had to uh, you know get a, a private you know go to family uh, to get some information from. But I want to mention yep. this because uh, really reflective of what we're talking about, uh, there's a great documentary that's being made right now, and there's a Kickstarter campaign for it. So so please give me the information on that, real fast. Well, the kick, the Kickstarter, you know, of course the campaign is on for another two weeks. And um, if the Kickstarter is successful, then the movie will be made. The movie is is a documentary about me and my work, and its title is Vermeer of the Borscht Belt. And it's being directed by an old friend named Kevin Doherty. And Kevin, uh, I first met Kevin 20 years ago. He hired me to do artwork for a CD-ROM he was doing for Simon & Schuster. So remember CD-ROMs? Yes, I do. That's awesome. <laughs> but Kevin, Kevin is a fat... Sorry, Kevin's a fabulous um, uh, animator, and he's made many music videos, and he's also passionate about my work, and he's been planning this film for several years, and finally mentioned it to me a few months ago, and I said, you know, I trust you to do it, to, to, get, to get it right. So he has a Kickstarter going on right now, and to tap into that Kickstarter and make a pledge, hopefully, uh, whatever you can, it's uh, either vermeertheborschfeld.com, one word, or chiconeededthemoney.com, all one word. <laughs> Chico needed the money, and that's a phrase that we, you know, we came up with on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. But again, um, Kevin is uh, dedicated to doing this movie, and it's got about two weeks left for the Kickstarter. And so far, it's been very, you know, we've gotten real enthusiastic uh, response to it. A lot of people have signed on, so hopefully it'll it'll uh, be made. Kevin, I'm going to grant Kevin access to my studio. He'll be filming me here for uh, to do interviews, and my wife as well, Kathy, and our dog Darla. So Lovely. we'll all be included. And then a lot of people will also uh, hopefully take part, like friends like Gilbert Gottfried and Jeff Ross, Howard Stern, Mark Maron, and people like that, to talk about my work. And also we'll show images of, you know, drawings I've done of them. So that'll, uh, that should be fun. Well, that, that's the thing, man. I mean, your, your art's been great. And I, you and I talked about your collaborations with your brother Josh, and I loved uh, one of my personal favorite stories we discussed in a previous podcast was – uh, your, your story about uh, the Andy Griffith show where 
a black gentleman uh, runs out of gas in Mayberry, and uh, it's a very dark parody that, man, I can only imagine the grief that you would get if that were to come out today. I, I can't imagine. I guess- I mean, honestly, and it, it was done in... It, it's a parody. I mean, and, and I know most reasonable people would see it that way, but it's times change, man, and it's you know, it I, I, it's great, but you know, again, I guess it's meant I, to be. It's meant to be sharp. I don't. I guess I don't think. Maybe I'm naive. I don't think about things like, well, I can't do this subject, or I can't go there anymore. In fact, I've even considered redrawing that because you know, I look at my old art. I'm not happy with it. I see. I only see the mistakes. Plus, I'm not a big fan of the stipple work I used to do. You know, I, it, to me, it seems kind of clunk, clunky now, but. I know I have, you know, I, I hear from people who like that work the most, and then other people think, well, you know, it's like, it was like a, a growing uh, ex- uh, experience of like, you know, going through that phase and then, yeah. you know, starting to paint. Um, I finally got bored with it, which is why I kind of put it aside, or I thought maybe I took it as far as I could go with it, and, you know, I was kind of repeating the same look. Uh, but, but I wanted to experiment, because I think artists should grow, and, you know, I kind of, I admire artists whose work evolves, so... Um, but I've actually considered redrawing that Andy Griffith. I don't know if I'll do it, but I kind of look at I look at the panels if I look at it and say, I, this could be better, or you know, the, this likeness could be stronger, or this angle could be different. You know, I really didn't know what I was doing when I did that. That's the first comic strip I did in 1980 or 79, and it ran in Art Spiegelman's Raw in the first issue of that. That um, forgive me, that's right. I and I think because I think I read it in. Is it any persons living or dead? Is that the name of yeah? Which that I, was. Uh, that was our first anthology. That came out a couple of years later. That that comic, that Andy Griffith comic, actually popped up in a few places early on. In in Raw, first issue of Raw, also Harvey Kurtzman's school magazine called Cartoons. Harvey was a teacher of mine at School of Visual Arts, and he did the, the regular magazine um, where old students' work appeared. So it ran in there. It also ran in High Times. So that for some reason, that, that particular comic popped up in a bunch of places before it wound up in the in the in this anthology. Um, Persons Living or Dead, which is the book with the big Shemp head on the cover. Yes, Shemp Howard, that's fantastic. The right. uh, no man, well, um, I'm I'm really psyched. I saw I saw the trailer at the kick for the you know for the movie at the Kickstarter campaign page. It looks great. Um, and again, you're you're just like like Gilbert, like Frank Santo Padre. You know, you're you're a collector of memorabilia and stories. And I know before a lot of these obscure movies have been popping up on either streaming or DVD. You were, you know, one of these guys that I'm sure were hunting for movies in the catalogs in the backs of, uh, you know, magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland and the like, all those Warren publications, too, where uh, they I guess something. I was. I guess so, yeah. You but, know. you know, it's like a, probably like similar to you. We had our particular passions when we were kids. It was like Absolutely. I like mainly I like the same things I liked when I was a kid. So I still like the same kind of movies, sure. TV shows. I mean, sometimes I'll look back at something and say, boy, that does not hold up. But <laughs> yeah, um, an example is like, I remember I loved laughing when it was originally on late sixties. I loved it. I just, I couldn't miss it. I you know, just watched and then it came back a decade later. And I, a friend, a friend in East village had a party, like, you know, when the first episode aired, the original laughing. And I went over there and we were just all looking at each other. Like this used to be funny. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's not funny. It's, it's just annoying. And you know, it's not clever that happens. But, um, you know, when I was, pretty young, really young. So I, I knew what I liked and I created this like universe in my bedroom where, you know, I was like, yeah, I collected comic books and mad magazine and monster magazines. And then, you know, obsessed with watching television. 
and you know discovering this world like you know it was right there on, in, in black and white on your tv and i had you know it's just like was i didn't want to go to school i didn't want to go to camp or go out and play i wanted to stay home and watch soupy sales and f troop and the three stooges <laughs> and our gang and popeye and yeah. bugs bunny and Abbott costello and the bowery boys I, you know but i had to go to school and all that stuff so i you know i, was, I resented that but you know <laughs> but that was like the world i just like created my own universe and you know like well, like a lot of you know like a lot of kids of course but then again, that's where all these great, so original faces obviously inspired you. Tor Johnson, you've, you know, you're, you've got, I, I can imagine uh, if you just did a Tor Johnson book, uh, I, I, I think you'd have a decent sized volume, wouldn't you? <laughs> I've considered, I've considered, you know, I've considered a lot of things. And one of them is I think a Tor just portraits, portraits of Tor, Tor Johnson. It may be a limited audience for that kind of thing, but. <laughs> You know, Tor is one of these guys. I used to see him like his face pop up in old horror films on Chiller Theater in New York or Supernatural Theater, or whatever, and Vampire too. And you know, before I even knew what Plan Nine from Outer Space actually was, I would see clips of it, and and the clips look so great. You know, he's like roaming around, roaming through graveyards with her. And I said, like, I thought at the time, like, I don't know what this film is, but it looks like the greatest film ever made. You know, just such beautiful <laughs> photography. And their faces highlighted by you know lighting and and that graveyard stuff and just like you know staring at, at like walking towards the camera and then I had no idea that it was going to finally like emerge and and people would say it was the worst film ever made and, you know maybe it is but I think it's you know I, I get more enjoyment out of watching that or and films like that than you know most other films to this day. Sure. No, it's idiosyncratic so, and well I think I heard uh, on on Gilbert's show as well that. Hey, everyone can laugh at Ed Wood. Meanwhile, like the guy made like six movies, got him made. You know, <laughs> I think he made more than that, and he was like, you know, he was passionate about what he did. He was like, Absolutely. you know, as sincere and as passionate as Orson Welles, which is, you know, what the uh, the 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 movie Ed Wood kind of points out when yes. Ed Wood and Orson Welles meet at the end, and they both are, you know have that same passion for making movies. One perhaps was a little more adept at it than the other one. But um, it's like, you know, but these faces haunted me when I was a kid. And I was like, like put them in, I the, kind of file them and like, oh, I'm going to do something with, you know, like do something. Well, Tor Johnson, example, like when I did a comic strip about Tor Johnson, I, I drew him at home um, at like a day in his life, just a day in his life. Yeah. And it ran in Robert, Robert Crumb's Weirdo magazine, like the fourth issue. Now, when Robert Crumb, when I sent him the artwork, he loved it, but he had never heard of Tor Johnson. He wrote me back. I said, you know, I, I I'd never heard of Tor Johnson. I said, okay, well, you know, he's an act, he was a wrestler, an actor. And, and then I started getting, uh, hearing from other people. This is before email, but I would get, like, a le letters and stuff from people saying, I can't believe you did a comic strip about Tor Johnson. I thought I was the only person who was aware of Tor Johnson. One of them was from a guy named Eddie Gordetsky, who's become my friend. He's... He's now a Hollywood producer. He produces um, The Big Bang Theory. Oh, yeah. But he wrote me a letter from when he was working at SCTV saying that, basically. I can't believe that anybody else even knows who Tor Johnson was. And he, he bought the artwork, and it's still hanging in his living room in Hollywood uh, for that first comic strip about Tor. That's crazy. You know, uh, in Small World, Eddie worked with a guy named Tom Couch uh, on mm -hmm. as a junior writer on SCTV, and Tom and I... Uh, were uh, radio buddies uh, for a long time. We worked 10 years together at one radio station in Chicago. And actually, unfortunately, I succeeded him at a second radio station in Chicago, and it broke uh. my heart because he's a great guy. But uh, he told me about those uh, SCTV days with Eddie and stuff. Well, that's what I mean, man. I mean, uh, honestly, I, 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 you know, I'm cut from the same cloth as you and Frank and these other guys that Gilbert has on his show that, you know, were just like, 
fascinated by these faces that we would see on the UHF channels when we were kids, when there were only five channels. Sure. You well, know, yeah, so. you're a fellow, tra- you're a fellow traveler. I always try to seek guys like you out. You know, people who just kind of get it. You don't yeah, have to man. explain. You don't have to like. You know, well, I'm doing it for the, the audience. You don't have to. They know. You don't have to explain things. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the thing. Exactly. You know, it's, like, you know, it's so comfortable to be with people who just kind of, you know, and and I get that from from Gilbert and Frank. Frank's an old friend, and Gilbert Surely. I used to know back in the back in the eighties used to come to my apartment. When I was working, unannounced, with his coat on, and I had a VHS machine. Gilbert did not. So he'd come, and I'd pop on, like, an old Ed Wood film or a Bell Lugosi film, or especially a Lon Chaney Jr. film. Gilbert's passionate about Lon Chaney Jr. And he'd sit there. We'd both sit there in silence and watch it. And, he, you know, I'd put his coat back on him and, and send him back to, you know, back to his apartment on uh, Avenue A, where he's living with his mother. Um, so we go way back, you know. So um, when we get together, you know, we actually email, and usually we just email about Lon Chaney Jr. or Lyle Atwell or Dwight Fry or, or George Zucco, you know, with, you know, like just, you know, out of the blue. I mean, with, with no explanation, we'll just send each other things and just talk about that, you know, oblivious to whatever else is happening in the rest of the world. There's a, there's a digital channel that runs, I don't know in how many markets, but it's called Decades, and they had a weekend where they were just showing from the 70s celebrity bowling and it was mm. great, and it was Marty Allen bowling, and you know, I mean Jack, Jack Carter, and Jack all, Carter. Oh yeah. yeah, but the great things yeah. were like suddenly you saw Marilyn Maxwell, and I'm like texting my buddy and going, "This was Bob Hope's mistress." I don't know if you're aware. Sure. sure. <laughs> and wow. stuff like that, you know. And it's like yeah, I used oh, to God. love that show, and I think Cl- Cliff has sent me a couple episodes of that um, as well. They, they really hold up, you know. Yeah, they're, they're hilarious. Oh my God. Yeah. Lauren Green. Yeah. Lauren Green and Roy Rogers are about to face Lloyd Bridges, yeah. and you know. Uh, Peter Graves. It's like, okay. I'm, a, I'm a longtime fan of celebrity bowling shows, and that dates back to Milton Berle hosting um, uh, Jackpot Bowling in the early 60s, which is one of the biggest flops oh. in the history of television. Man, I wish I had Bri- Oh, my God. No, I, I didn't bl- know I, bl- I blogged about it. Just type in uh, Milton Berle Jackpot Bowling, Drew Friedman, you'll see my blog about the whole thing. It was like a huge catastrophe. Ten years earlier, Milton Berle was, you know, Mr. Television, right. Mr. Tuesday. The night. king of The king and, of television, yeah. Ten years later, in 1961, he was hosting a bowling show. You know, so, <laughs> how the mighty have fallen. No kidding. But it's man. fascinating, and he had celebrity guests on. He has the Ritz brothers, and you know, people come out, they talk, they do shtick with Milton Berle, and then they bowl, you know, for for money or for charity. But it's Debbie Reynolds pops up, and the Ritz brothers, and uh, and uh, you know, it's just like Bobby Darin pops up, you know, early 60s stars. Sure, yeah, no, check it out. <laughs> oh no, that's awesome. That's fantastic. I hope I hope some kinescopes survive of that. That would be great to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. They're on they're on YouTube. Yeah. There oh, are wow. there's some on YouTube. See that's the most fascinating thing, thing on YouTube. Well, just to get back to my book, you yes, know, I please. have a Whitney El- Whitney Ellsworth. Whitney yes. Ellsworth is in the new book. Now, talk was, about you know, talk about Whitney Ellsworth. Eh? Yes, by all means. He was he was the yeah, he started as a comic editor for National D C and then he became the liaison between uh, DC and Hollywood when they when they decided that Superman should be you know turned into a, a film Superman versus the Mole Men first and then that evolved into the TV series with George Reeves so Whitney is portrayed in my book he's sitting with George Reeves backstage he was like an on hand producer on hand producer at that you know at the Adventures of Superman yes that show was so huge you know such a popular show that he decided that he they would do a version for children. And called Super Pup, so it was like dogs as, as the Superman characters, you know, basically, you know, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, 
Terry White, Jimmy Olsen. But how do you do that with dogs? No. So their solution was to hire midgets and put, and build these fiberglass dog heads and pop them on their head and then dub in the voices, you know, from, uh, you know, guys who did cartoon voices. Sure. And that was the pilot for Super Pup. Now, this thing is on YouTube. You know, if anybody's curious, go, just go to YouTube, type in Super Pup. You can watch the entire episode. I think it's it's even in color. And But, you know, it only went to a pilot. Obviously, it wasn't picked up. It was, uh, you know, it didn't quite click. Um, but that was uh, one of, you know, that was Whitney Ellsworth's legacy. That's one of his legacies. And then later on, he did a Superboy TV show. Yes. Um, after, after George Reeves died, they tried that and also just went to a pilot and didn't go beyond that. So, Did, did you know about uh, Marty Pasco from D.C. had told me that they approached Jack Larson after George Reeves had died about mm-hmm. possibly doing a Jimmy Olsen series and using George Reeves stock footage and, oh, right, and wow. right around those scenes. I know. Isn't that morbid? And, of course, Jack Larson's like, uh, no. <laughs> you know, no thanks. He's never... No, never heard that. That's like when uh, when Shemp died, and they made four yes. more shorts with him, with with Joe Palma filling in for Shemp. You know, just showing him from the back of his head. And Those then, are on you YouTube. Know, splice, Those scenes, yes. Yeah, and splice in you know some Shemp footage from earlier shorts and stuff. But you know, they were under contract to produce four more shots, and Jules White, you know, nothing stopped him from getting getting it out there. So, uh, you know, they're fascinating. I yeah, was and Joe Palma. Joe Palma has his fans. That's amazing. Exactly. Fake shrimp. Fake shrimp, exactly. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. amazing. All right, well, while we're on the book, so tell me about uh, tell me about the guy that you, you know, had to go th- to the family and well, uh, track down. Again, you know, again, like I said, I, what, one thing, I, I didn't really want to annoy family members, you know, with my book. So I tried to avoid that in most cases. A lot of reference online, a lot of it not good. Some of it just hazy, black and white. That didn't bother me. It was like more of a challenge for me to find a piece of like a, like a out of focus black and white photo and then transform that into a color illustration or sure. a face and concoct it. But it was one guy I really wanted to include. And that's because he was the brother of Abe Vigoda and his name was Bill Vigoda. Now, Abe, I got to know a little bit towards the end of his life. Abe would come to some of my parties in New York at the Friars Club and the Society of Illustrators when they had a showing of my old Jewish comedian art. Abe actually came to the opening, posed with uh, uh, over 100 people for photographs. Oh, he was a very sweet, very sweet guy, very, um, you know, terrific guy, and as nice as could be. So um, before he died, I wrote him a letter and asked if I said, I'd, you know, Abe, I'd love to include your brother Bill Vigoda in my sequel, More Heroes of the Comics. And I heard back from his daughter, who sent me a photograph, which I didn't love. But then I had a friend, my friend John Wendler, who has this knack for coming up with, you know, whatever I need, okay. sent me a photo of, of Bill Vigoda, um, it, like smoking a pipe in hunting garb. And that was enough to go on, you know, to, to build this illustration that I have in the new book of Bill Vigoda. But when researching Bill Vigoda, if, if researching online counts as research, because that's what I was doing, at some of the comic sites, one of the comic sites said Bill Vigoda was married to a high Vigoda, H-Y, I said, that doesn't sound right. There were no women named Hi, H-Y. So, I, you know, again, like, went back and researched, and Hi Vigoda turns out to be a third Vigoda brother who also worked in comic books as a writer in the 40s and into the 50s. I had never heard of him. And so at that point, I contacted, uh, oh, Gilbert had a fan. Uh, Frank told me, Frank Santo Padre told me that uh, one of Gilbert's, uh, one of the podcast fans was uh, Ashley Vigoda. Ashley Vigoda's grandfather was High Vigoda. Wow. So Ashley actually wrote me and said, like, oh, I loved your episode on Gilbert and blah, blah. I said, that's great. By the way, 
do you happen to have any photographs of your grandfather Hyde? Because I'd like to include him in my new book. And, cert- and sure enough, she sent me a great photo of him uh, posed for his wedding in the early 40s, mid-40s. And from that, I, I used the face reference to build my image of him sitting behind a typewriter. And so we have both Vagoda brothers in the new book. And, you know, people had heard of Bill Vigoda. He was an excellent Archie Comics artist for like 30 years from the 40s to the 70s. And, but, I, you know, I don't think anybody knew, who, uh, you know, like I said, the comics experts like a Danny Fingeroff had never heard of High Vigoda. So, so I, we have both Vigoda brothers in, in the new book, which I'm happy about. I'm assuming you obviously leaned on Danny and, as you said, Paul Levitz, too. Uh, I mean, you know, that's that's the great thing. And, and, again, that's something I don't want to see go away from comics because, you know, Levitz and, and Danny and stuff, they really got to know a lot of these these guys before they passed. And certainly Paul even got to work with, you know, Gardner Fox. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of these I other, mean, the, you the, know, golden age greats. Paul goes way back to the early 70s. You know, when I remember seeing it at the Tulsa and Comic-Cons, like selling his, his um, fanzine there before he started working with DC. But um, Danny's Danny's been a, a great help to me. You know, he's, he's actually moderated a couple of talks I've done in the city, and he's terrific. And I also, you know, I lean on Gary Groth, who's like pretty much, he was a oh, good yeah. comics expert too, and get his, you know, Gary, when I did the first book, he's the publisher at Fantagraphics, and I was working on it. I said, you know, Drew, I think you should call this book Heroes and Villains of the Comics. And I, I leaned against that. I was not into that idea because I didn't want to cast a negative light on the on the title and also like, okay, well, who's a villain? Like, let people, if if anybody in the book is, is a villain in the first book, and I think there were some, perhaps, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm well, he's in the he's in the new book, but uh, in okay. the first book, you know, Bob, Bob Kane was in there. Say what you will sure. about him, and also sure. Frederick Worth Frederick Wortham. I have in the it closes in the, out the book. The, yeah, the first book, absolutely, man. Right. So you know, I don't know if they were necessarily heroes, but in one way or another, they were a hero. I mean, they had an effect on that business in one way, possibly oh, yeah. negative, possibly in one. So that's why those guys were included in that book, and then in the second book, a guy like Victor Fox, or even um, um, uh, the notorious. Uh, Publisher of the um, Erie magazines from oh, the sixties. Uh, no, Myron Fast. Oh, excuse me. Okay, because yeah, I, I always associate uh, Jim with uh, those books. Yeah, Jim Warren's in the book, and uh, Jim Warren's in the book because a he wrote me a, a series of lovely letters when the first book came out. Came out, he loved it, and then I started. You know, I, like I said, I was trying to concentrate on creators who entered the business from the mid thirties to the mid fifties. Till okay. around not fifty five or so when you see went under. Mm-hmm. Jim Warren started his publishing career a couple of years later, but I think he had such a huge effect on me anyway. Is publishing those horror comics magazines in the sixties and kind of reviving the whole vibe of EC and using all those the same artists and whatnot, even though they were scripted by Archie Goodwin, who did an amazing job. I thought. Yeah. So I thought I thought Jim should be in the second, but he's like the one exception or a guy who came on a little later. Um, and so I added him and, you know, he's just been very, really supportive and sweet guy. And, um, but Byron Fass is also in the book and he, you know, of course started out as a comic book, uh, artist, you know, a competent artist, but what, you know, of course he went on to as, as become a publisher and, and what he published was basically like recycling whatever was successful and, and, you know, watering it down and putting out, you know, and, and becoming, you know, having a huge success at that. Was he a knock, so, in terms of knockoff examples, or literally lifting old well, stories and reprinting them? Not that. When, like we'll say, when Mad became successful, he would do a knockoff, like sure. Lunakill. He called. So when Creepy and Eerie and became popular, he came out with Weird, 
and tales of voodoo and tales of horror. Ba- basically, you know, and what he did sure. was he re- re- took, you know, took those early the stories from the fifties, black from the comic books, and reprinted them in black and white. Added more blood, you know, because we were into the late into the mid late sixties, and his comics were not affected by the comics code since they were magazines. Right. Well, so yeah. you know that. The other thing was pretty horrific stuff, especially the covers, like bloodletting and horrible, gory covers. But I was buying them when I was a kid, eight, seven, eight years old. I was buying them and enjoying them. And, <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that, that's, that's, how, uh, that's how much my parents were watching what I was bringing in the I, house. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was, you know, about 10 or 15 years behind you and everything and doing the same thing in the, in the 70s. I mean, yeah, I, I was I, buying well, I wasn't even sneaking them in. Yeah, it was just like yeah. put, put in the stack of whatever magazines or comics. <laughs> And that also applies to, you know, Underground Comics and Robert Crumb. I was buying Zap Comics and Bijou Comics when I was eight years old. You know, and those comics were labeled for adults only, but I would just, you know, pick up a stack of them in a bookstore in the city and pop them, pop them on the counter with whatever my dad was buying of his. And, you know, he'd look at them and think they were just comic books, and that was it. So I, by the time I was like nine years old, I had a huge stack, and so did Josh, of under of these underground comics with this <laughs> twisted work by Robert Crumb and S. Clay Wilson and Jay Lynch, et cetera. <laughs> well, you know, and uh, you mentioned in the foreword of the first book, too, that, you know, your dad obviously, as you said earlier, too, worked at uh, Magazine Entertainment, worked next to Stan Lee, did desk next to him, and, you know, he dumped Marvel Comics uh, at your uh, feet. Uh, you know, yeah, that, know, was, that, came out. that was basically my childhood. You know, like he worked at... Stan was in the next office, so but every Friday my dad would bring us back a stack of the latest Marvel comics. This is the early, awesome. you know, during like the, the the dawn of the Silver Age. So we sure, had you know, stacks of Sp- Spider Man and X Men and Avengers and stacks of them. And you know, so I, by the time I was you know again ten years old, I had a huge collection of that stuff. You know, it's like I, I assumed that was like you know that was it was normal you know for me like just have the, you know every Friday he'd bring back this stuff. And then when we visit him up at his office. Um, you know, I made a beeline for the Marvel for Marvel Comics, and Stan was like the perfect host. You know, he was very charming and and delighted to just take time with me. And especially when he learned I wanted to be an artist, you know, he just he said that someday Drew is going to work for Marvel. He would pronounce. <laughs> and it didn't quite happen, but you know, well, I you still have fun. There's yeah, Sorry. I was going to say there's a story in the in your forward about uh, a week at Marvel, kind of as yeah, a, I did that in the early years, like oh. oh a school, like just for my my uh, school assignment, was to like get a job out there in the real world doing something, and then write about it. So, so I asked my dad, like, could you call Stan and ask? They had kind of kept in touch. Could you? My dad left magazine management in 1966, so this was 72, I think. So okay. I just said, so my dad called him, and you know that. So we went up there to visit Stan before I started, and you know, and then the next week I just spent basically the week up there just running errands, you know. Picking up artwork for for Tony Isabella, or, or hanging around with John Romita or Herb Trimpey or Marie Severin, they were in the artist bullpen that week. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so I just absorbed I absorbed it and just hung around. Did you know like helped out with like this or that, and it was fun. They paid me for it. I think fifty bucks. So I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> that was my career. That was my career at Marvel. My entire career. But you did work for Mad, and did you get a chance to work with Gaines before he passed away? No, but I knew him because his son Chris went to my high school, so I was friends with Chris Gaines, who sadly um, died a few years ago. Oh man! Kind of tragic. He committed suicide. Um, oh, yeah. But I also know Bill. I also know um, Bill Gaines's daughter Wendy, and uh, they, they. They when I did a, um, uh, uh, a presentation to Society of Illustrators on behalf of the first Heroes of the Comic Book, it was fun because we got Bill Gaines's um, daughters and grandkids came. 
Will Elder's uh, daughter and son-in-law came. Uh, uh, Will Eisner's nephew uh, came. All these people who are like, you know, most of them are past, but we had Al Jaffe up on stage. You know, he's like 96 now. Yeah. So we had some of the legends with us, Danny, Danny Finger of Moderate. It was like fun. We had the uh, Nikki Wheeler, um, Wheeler whose you know, grandfather was uh, uh, the Mal- uh, made the major, Malcolm who basically, you know, was one of the guys who founded, who started comic books for, you know, for National, and before he was bought out by uh, Donatello and Leibowitz. I'm sure your listeners know all this stuff, but, this you know. is Yeah, this is all that Men of Tomorrow stuff that uh, Gerard Jones covers in uh, Yeah, it's an amazing book. book. He did a beautiful book. Yep. Yeah. And and he, my book is kind of, my book is kind of, the books are kind of an extension of what he was doing, although my books are, you know, more about the illustrations, I think. The biographies are secondary. Um, and uh, let me also mention that the, the biographies in the book were copy were, were um, edited, research edited by Kevin Doherty, who's making the documentary about me, and he did an amazing job. Um, Absolutely, as great, far as like, great information. Yeah, Please. yeah, go on. He just kind of came up with stuff I, I had no idea about, and he went beyond the call of duty uh, as far as uh, researching this book and coming up with these facts about these people. So. No, it's it really it it belongs with uh, Gerard Jones and I know Nikki and Gerard are also working on a biography of the major and I'm you know when that's ready to roll I'll have them both on the show as well. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. I'm looking forward to that. And the other book that kind of like instigated the, the, that whole interest in the early comics and the early superhero comics and you know mainstream comics was the Jules Pfeiffer book from the mid '60s, Great Comic Book Heroes. Yep. Which I loved. I loved. I absorbed that when I was six or seven. Jules was a friend of my dad. He'd be around the house a lot, draw, draw, do his drawings on napkins. So I had that book. I loved it and and studied it and learned about those guys. And um, so Jules is actually in this new book, More Heroes of the Comics. Yes. And of course, Jules never actually worked for mainstream comic books. But the two reasons he's in there is because he was Will Eisner's assistant in the '40s. And then he wrote this book, they made the great conflict heroes in the, in the mid, in the mid sixties. So I felt Jules, I have a young portrait of younger portrait of Jules Cypher in this book when he had hair. <laughs> well, you know, and then also, again, like you say that, I mean, growing up in the seventies, that, uh, Pfeiffer's book was one of those few collections and God, it was the first time I think I saw a lot of these, uh, golden age stories. First uh, time I ever saw plastic man's origin was in Pfeiffer's book. And you know the Captain America origin was in there. At least the version I had were they were they were the reprints part of his book uh, when it initially came out in the sixties as well. I, I believe so. Yeah, I have the original book, but uh, yeah, I believe so. And I think the guy who like um, shot the stats or photo stats for that book was a guy named Jack Adler. And um, Jack Adler is actually the first person in the new book, uh, More Heroes of the Comics, the first image, first biography. And Jack Adler was of course. A veteran DC national editor, starting in the mid '40s into the '70s, you know, yep. kind of rose rose up the ranks. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about Jack Adler is he's Howard Stern's mother's cousin. So over the years, Howard has talked talked about Jack Adler, yeah. you know, over and over. And Jack was like helpful to him when he was a kid, like helped him with his high school uh, project that helped him graduate. He's like he loved he loved his uncle Jack Adler. So I sent Howard a copy of the new book. And he was thrilled, and he got a copy. He got a copy for his parents too, who were related. And he was very, just very touched that you know I thought to include Jack Adler. But you know, Jack Adler's not a household name, but he was certainly a legendary guy in that world. 
you know, well, for many you, years. Yeah, you know, honestly, uh, having the opportunity to talk to Neil Adams and some of the other uh, late Silver Age, early Bronze Age guys that knew these guys, uh, you know, as bosses and stuff, I, I get a few of these stories. And, yeah, you know, Adler's a perfect example of that. Talking to Denny O'Neill. I mean, you, you mentioned Whitney Ellsworth. The guy he handed off the Superman comics to was Mort Weisinger. And, mm-hmm. and, and well, at least, Mort's uh, in the book, too. Oh, there you go. Exactly. And more, and you yeah, know, more, yeah. Mort's kind of a notorious, all those great Jimmy Olsen stories were happening under uh, Mort's uh, editorship back in the silver age. And it's, it, again, it's interesting to watch younger uh, readers react to those silver age stories, which were crazy, but also kind of like mad magazine, they were reflective of what was going on in pop culture. So we think it's weird that Pat Boone is on a Superman cover, but really it was, mm-hmm. you know, or Alan Funtz shows up and there's a candid camera Superman story and stuff. But again, he, they were just reflecting on pop culture in really oh, sure. the same way yeah, that Matt was. Yeah, you can't avoid that. I mean, you couldn't avoid that back then. They wanted to sell copies as many as, pop, as, many as possible, so you put popular, you know, performers or TV sure. stars or movie stars in your covers. But I like, uh, I wanted to include Mort because I, I did, you know, really admire what he did goes way back and you know he's a character and he and he had a great face so you know it's like a lot of this had to do with like who had a great face i left out a few people who were just kind of bland like you know but first you know the art comes first for me so (laughs) who has a bland face face in comics history you're like yeah whatever (laughs) well you know well you know a lot of these guys were just anonymous and you know nondescript and you know uh like guys who looked like you just wouldn't notice you know because they weren't looking for they weren't looking for um, attention for the most part. A lot of them won't even, you know, even care about getting rich or anything. Some of them did, but you know, you got a guy like Jack Kirby who never made a hell of a lot of money over the years and worked, you know, at his little wooden desk in the basement for all those years, creating all that amazing work. Um, but these guys weren't really looking for huge amounts of attention and stuff. They just loved work, loved doing that work, you know, which a lot of them started doing when they were teenagers. You know, it's not, I think Joe Kubert was 12 when he wound up yeah. working at the, at the shop yep. in the late thirties. And I think Johnny Craig too was 12. So these guys, like there's this whole opportunity opened up for all these artists and writers in the, in the late thirties. And especially after Superman exploded, and it was just like a huge opportunity for all these, these young artists just out of school, out of art school or high school to like, like have their work published. And, and you know, this, if the door was shut out, you know, if it was hard to become a, you know, an illustrator for mainstream magazines or pulps or books, newspapers newspaper comics this whole world opened up and it was just like all these like young talented not all of them talented but you know some of them went on to have amazing careers as you know so that just all like happened at that time in the mid to late 30s and that's what i try to capture in this book which is why i am mainly centering on guys who um started you know during those first 20 years and some of them like john buscema started in the late 40s and you know but didn't really become huge or big, you know, a, a, a fan favorite till the, the mid late sixties, you know, like that. So I don't include guys like Jim Steranko or Neil Adams or people who came a little later because they started in the sixties and, and went on to have huge careers. They're not in this book. That's a, that's a separate book, you know, which sure. I don't think I'll do. I don't think I'll do, but, um, I've been asked like, well, how come Neil Adams is in? Well, because he just, nothing against Neil Adams. But he just began his career a little later. That's all. Oh, absolutely! No, I, I would love to. I would have loved to include Bernie Wrightson, but the same thing, you know, just yeah. came along a little later. So it's just a different era. Well, Bernie, Bernie has an interesting face too. I, you know, and I, that's. I mean, that is. It's always been a hallmark of your stuff, uh, whether it's been, you know, some of the, you know, the the, the, the weird uh, 
uh, high school uh, yearbook uh, pictures and, and things like that from way back and the gangsters that you've done. And, you know, I mean, I got this. I don't want this to sound indelicate, but is do you think the mixing of the races as we've all just kind of calmed down and been a little bit cooler about like all getting together is actually genetically kind of removing some of the wonderful faces that came across the ocean, you know, back uh, at Ellis Island years and stuff like that. I'm- yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But yes, with me, it's, it's, <laughs> it's about the faces. It's always been about the faces. I'm fascinated by, you know, faces. Sure. Um, and I love to draw faces, you know. But I also, you know, when I'm doing this work for the new book and for, for you know, recent work, I'm also, I also get lost in backgrounds now. And like, you know, drawing like uh, a shirt or a, the desk. You know, if you look for this, the new book and the first Heroes of the Comics book, I really love um, drawing or imagining even uh, the offices or the the working um, surroundings of these people, like yes. you know their environment. So I really get into desk lamps and uh, <laughs> and their pencils and their tables and the the type of paper they're using. All those little details, like to build up the illustration. So it's the face is the main part, but you know I also get lost in the backgrounds, and I have you know I want to get those right. And it has to be the right kind of lamp, you know, a kind of lamp, desk lamp that would have existed back then in the, you know, 30s, 40s, or 50s. You know, so you can't take that stuff for granted. But again, mentioning the movie Vermeer of the Borscht Belt will cover, you know, every facet of the work I've done over the years, starting with the comics that I did with my brother Josh and my solo work um, for Heavy Metal and, and, and Raw and Weirdo. And then evolve into the spy work. And um, and then beyond into the magazine work, and then and then the more recent books. So, and the Jewish and the Jew, old Jewish comedians, and you know, and hopefully include some of those old Jewish comedians to discuss their portraits, like Larry Storch, and we're hoping Jerry Lewis agrees to an interview. Oh, that's so this book, the, so the movie when when the movie hopefully when the movie happens, um, when the film filming commences next year, when the movie happens, it'll cover you know all that stuff. So you know, it's like. A, a whole hodgepodge of, you know, the, the stuff. I want the movie to mainly be about my work. It's like, I don't want it to be a crumb film where it's like, you know, going into weird family dynamics. Yeah, I know. But, That's, you know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, that film in particular is really heartbreaking. Yeah, but it's a, I think it's a masterpiece. And, oh, absolutely. You know, there's, been a, there's been a couple of great films uh, about artists. I've said the, the film, the documentary about Wayne White, I don't know if you've seen that, the artist Wayne White was terrific. No. And the, 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 guy, who's make, the guy who made that, is actually making a documentary about Gilbert Gottfried right now, following Gilbert Gottfried oh, everywhere. That's great. And I think and I think he's driving Gilbert nuts. <laughs> you know, Gilbert is a pretty private guy. He wants to be left alone. And he has this filmmaker um, following him to every gig he's doing and, you know, filming him at this place and that. I think Gilbert's going a little nuts. You know. Well I he wants it to end. I love I love the I love the podcast and I'm really glad again that they're tapping into this this showbiz history that could get forgotten very easily and God, his Larry Storch interview was was outstanding. And I also want to point it out was. your your illustrations that you've been um, you've been selling limited uh, prints of a lot of your really like Phil Silvers and Nat Hiken. Um Cliff Nesteroff wrote a great uh, essay about uh, Joey Ross from Car Fifty Four. Where are you? And I love yeah. your I loved your King illustration. Of, that was just fantastic. Joey Ross, King King of the Swabs was his blog uh, <laughs> on that, and that was great. It was as thorough as you could get. Cliff's work is amazing, and I. You know, before he became famous, I used to admire, you know, love his his blogs for WFMU yes. over the years. You know, yes. just obscure show business, comedy history, and it's just his detail, getting into the, these details and so getting you know, finding these rare photos. So, you know, he deserves his success with his book, The Comedians, uh, and he's become a good friend. Um, but um, 
my uh, print site is drewfreeman.net, and then there you can find my um, my prints of people like uh, Frank Zappa and Johnny Cash and Schlitzy and Siegel and Schuster and Muddy Waters and Harvey Kurtzman. You know, just people like I like to draw. You know, like from various fields: singers, comedians, actors, etc., writers. So. Um, DrewFreeman.net. That's the uh, print site. Outstanding. Yeah, there's really just beautiful stuff that you'd be proud to, you know, put on your wall and everything because it's just high class stuff. And and yeah, I mean, just the the wonderful depictions of these celebrities. It's it's Thanks, fantastic. John. No, hey man, you're like you said. I did enjoy your stipple work, but I I am more than happy to go on the journey with you as your art evolves. And it's it's. I always you know, I always appreciate hearing that. You know, it's like I can't I can hardly look at it now, but I do like you know I enjoy hearing when people say, "Oh no, I really like that stuff." So that, that's nice to hear. It's like I'm happy good. with that. Well, but, yeah, and I but <laughs> I can also feel I can appreciate because you know I can go back 20 years and hear an old air, radio air check of mine and cringe. But you know, hey man, you yeah, get, you know, you get better. You know, I mean, you, you know ten, how it is. Ten thousand, you know, yeah, ten uh, a thousand drawings, ten thousand hours. Malcolm Gladwell, all that stuff. It's true. Yeah. Hopefully you get better. Hopefully you you know improve or at least evolve. You know I don't know if, about getting better, but you know evolving anyway. Because I tend to get bored or restless um, uh, with you know with working or you know I just want to try new things. So as, as far as doing a, another book on heroes uh, of the comics, it's unlikely. You know I'd, I'd rather move on in some other direction. I have a new book planned for next year. It will be a book of portraits. Um, more more my recent print work and portrait work, cool. um, which will include lots of comedians and singers and, and you know, and, and everyday people as well and artists. Uh, I'm actually working on a portrait of Chris Ware right now. Who's one oh, of my fantastic. favorite artists. Oh, yeah. And I drew I recently drew Dan Close and I did a I did a portrait of Charles Burns recently. So I'm try, I'm drawing art, more contemporary artists. I'm including them anyway, the people I admire. And so they'll be included in this book. This book will be called Drew Friedman's Chosen People, which Hilarious. doesn't mean it's only going to be it's not going to be only be Jewish people, but but that's that's the title right now. I, I like and that it. should be that should be out later next year. Oh, that's great, man! Oh no, please come back. Cause, and you know, seriously, that's great that you were able you managed to uh, get a a good depiction of Chris Ware because anytime I've seen him at conventions, he is so self conscious. He literally has his head buried in his hands. Oh, and, sure. it, and it's well, the funniest thing in the world to watch. And it's like, dude, we all love you. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you, you it's, it's the kind of kind of uh, crumb kind of vibe going on where it's like kind of painful to like deal with that stuff. I understand that. I don't like. I don't really like going to conventions either. You're kind of a sitting duck. Um, yeah, I, I've done a few recently for this book. It's nice to meet people who who enjoy, enjoy my work. But you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a big. You know. I, as far as going to convention, I can do an hour or so, but, you know, sitting there for the day, it's like, you can, you know, oh, no, that's, wear your day. I hear you, man. No, were you, were you at the New York show? I didn't see you. I didn't know if you. No, were. I don't, I don't go to, I don't go to that New York show. Um, the Fanographics, they don't even take a table there. It's not really, uh, well, as, to quote Eric Reynolds, the publisher of Fanographics, it's not our crowd. I hear you. So I don't do the New York show. I went to San Diego two years ago and that was fun, but you know, it's, it's, such an avalanche of people and stuff, but you know we have. You, you go to the you go to San Diego and it's like okay, over in one corner you see you know Fanographics and Jordan Quarterly and the kind of the people that I at least want to hang out with and, and associate with. Um, but you know it's like so if you're willing to bite the bullet and deal with that stuff, but um, so uh, there, there's a, um, a festival called the Mocha Comics Art Festival in New York every year. Yes. So 
Uh, next April, I'm going to be a guest there, and what they're going to be doing is going to be showing original uh, original art from the Heroes of the Comics books. Hey, About fantastic. 60 of the uh, original pieces will be hanging. And then a month later, the art will go over to the Society of Illustrators and hang there for a while, for a month, month and a half, in their MoCA gallery, um, the original art from the Heroes of the Comics. Will be on so that's coming up. That comes up, but that starts next April, so that should that's be fun. Excellent. Before I forget, I also I wanted to ask about uh, the Juzeum. That Am I right? Am I, isn't that oh, the, okay. the, the, the comedy sure, museum well, that you set up? The Juzeum uh, the, the is my uh, collection, I guess it's a collection of Jewish comedy artifacts, um, ephemera, and you know, I have thousands of pieces. Now, I don't have this stuff because of the value necessarily. In fact, most people would find a lot of it worthless, but to me... It's a value because I, you know, I, I love the comedians, you know, that that uh, are represented in this stuff. So it's books, it's records, it's games, it's shoelaces, Pinky Lee shoelaces, Milton <laughs> Berle cigar boxes, uh, uh, Maury Amsterdam frisbee, wow. things like that. You know, Joey Joey Bishop trading cards, um, stuff that you know, just like kind of like you would the unexpected stuff. So I have, you know, all, it was actually on display in New York earlier in the year at the. the Museum of uh, Jewish uh, Contemporary Jewish History, and now it's in my studio. So this Jewseum will be featured in the document, in the upcoming documentary, Vermeer of the Borschfeld. The Jewseum will be part of the. Um, it's, it's in my studio, so I'm actually looking at it now, part of it. But it, it continues to grow. And what people, I'm not really a collector, so I don't go, I don't really seek things out. I don't go to eBay and look for stuff. But what happens now is people will send me things. So um, you know, or or they'll give me things when I run into them. They'll bring me things. So. You know, it's very nice. I would never um, put anything up on eBay. I want this to stay together as a collection. I don't know where it will wind up someday. But anyway, there it is. So the Jewseum, Drew Friedman's comedy, Jewseum, will be featured in this document. That sounds But thank you for asking. Oh, no. My pl- Honestly, man, uh, I remember when you had some sort of uh, public appearance for it. And I and I approached you then about coming on and saying, "Hey man, I want to. I'd love to hear about it." And you're like, "Yeah, let me let me uh, let me get this comic book uh, heroes thing out first, and then we'll talk." So it started. This this thing started to expand. The Jewseum started to expand after I had a show at the Society of Illustrators two years ago for my old Jew, Jewish comedians artwork, mm-hmm. and I had a collection. I had a collection of this stuff, so I thought this that, that stuff will look nice on display at the Society in, in cases, which they had supplied. And then from there, just like I said, well, I, I should add on to it, you know, just to enhance. And then from there, it just started uh, escalating. And, and, uh, and so there it is. <laughs> That's outstanding, man, honestly. And, and you know, we're lucky because you're in New York. I'm in Chicago. It's not as uh, memorabilia surviving as New York is. I always find when I when I go to Curios and stuff, more interesting things in your city. But that's the thing. It's it's great that some of that stuff does exist. It's it's wonderful to see. It's it's fun. I mean, you know, more than frisbees. Who you know? Yeah, obviously, and that's why you got all this stuff. And I oh, think that's terrific, be, man. It'll be featured in the film. And my little secret is, I'm actually not in New York. I'm in a secret, undisclosed location, which I'm not going <laughs> to disclose. That's okay. Uh, but I'm not in New York. Everybody, is, for some reason, assumes I'm in New York. Maybe I sound like I'm from New York, but I grew up in New York. I lived in New York for many years. But my wife and I do not live in New York now. But uh, all right. <laughs> It will be disclosed where I live in the documentary. Oh, that's <laughs> that's good. More more unanswered questions we've always wanted to know. That's exactly. great. All your questions will be answered in this in this talk. <laughs> that's great. Well, honestly, man, no, I'm happy to help you promote it, and I really want to I want to see this film happen, and uh, I'm I'm glad to make my audience aware of it as well. And seriously, man, you're always entertaining. Truly, a great great storyteller, and I imagine that'll be featured in the documentary as well. But and and your art uh, speaks for itself. It's it's gorgeous stuff, man, and I know. 
Uh, it's tough. Is it tougher now um, getting, you know, I mean, you generate your own books and you generate your own prints and stuff like that. But obviously the magazine business and its decline has to impact guys like you, I'm sure. Um, I'm not sure it does because I don't pay much attention to it anymore. I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough where I can do my own work and not have to worry about, um, you know, uh, getting assignments or, you know, waiting for the phone to ring or anything like that anymore. Okay. Occasionally I'll take an assignment. Like when Donald Trump was running for president, I really had an urge to draw him and all his orange vileness. Um, <laughs> that orange is kind of fading away now, isn't it? You know, like when you see uh, images of him recently on well, TV. Well, yeah, and, and also that. just the white circles under his eyes where clearly whatever bronzer he's using and stuff. I mean, it's just Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the orange, they're, they're kind of laying off that stuff. But I had an urge to draw him, and I did draw him. I drew him for Mad one time uh, when he was running, you know. Yes. Um, they, they did a parody of, uh, it was actually a very good concept. It was a, to take the imagined back cover of John Lennon looking up in the, in the clouds, and it would be, John, it would be Donald Trump's imagined. So, you know, <laughs> go from there. Imagine there's no Muslims. It's, it's easy if you try, yeah. et cetera. So I was happy when I did that. But, you know, as far as assignments, you know, if something comes along like Lewis Black uh, for the Village Voice, I did that recently. If, if somebody I, I have an urge to draw, I'll oh, take that'd it, be but, great. Oh, but, I'm gonna have to look that uh, up. That's excellent. Already did that. Yeah, that's online. You can see that Lewis Black. I had fun with that. In fact, I heard from Lewis who like who really enjoyed it. I bet. Um, but I try. You know, it's like these days I, I try to resist that. Like my heart isn't into just taking assignments anymore. And, uh, I hear you. you know, I'd rather work on, you know, maybe because I'm getting older, I'd rather work on what I'm more passionate about, my own projects. Who so, are the, you know, I'm. Who who are the few comedians that were like not happy with your uh, your drawings as, oh, as they happened? Well, um, there were you know most of these guys. The one guy who just didn't like his drawing and asked me to redo it was Jack Carter. But Jack Carter hated he everything. He, 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 died, he died a couple of years ago. Yeah, but yeah. He, he he hated everything. It was like everything was negative. <laughs> everything was horrible. So I didn't talk to him directly. There was a, a report, the, a writer Ben Schwartz who was writing a piece for the Los Angeles Times about the Jewish comedian book who sent Jack Carter a copy and Jack Carter, like he talked to him on funny said he hated it, hated this portrait. He wanted me to redraw him, but he loved the portrait I did of uh, Buddy Hackett and Sid Caesar and other, and uh, other friends of his that were in the book. He, he loved them. In fact, so we took his quote actually, and, and used that as a quote from the Los Angeles times, that's which is, cool. you know, maybe not so kosher, but that's what we did. But <laughs> the other guys who didn't like, who were angry about it were, um, you were angry because we what, what the first what the Jewish comedians books the only text in those books were their real name their real Jewish name and then their show business name yes so Sid Caesar was upset that we kind of outed his name as Isaac and Don Rickles was upset that we found out his real name was Archibald I mean, these guys don't they want their legacy to like be their comedic name that's crazy um, I guess I don't blame them but they were angry and we heard from some of their you know Sid Caesar actually called Fanographics and started screaming at the Publisher Kim Tom, the late Kim Thompson, who was delighted to like have Sid Caesar on the phone for I'm half sure. an hour, even though <laughs> even though Sid Caesar was yelling at him, and you know even went into Yiddish and German dialects in, his, uh, in the yelling. <laughs> but mainly, I heard from guys who loved. I, loved, would, I know we're we're closing out in a second, but I, yeah. I heard from guys who were in no, the book can, who loved the book, and that was yeah. Jerry Lewis and Larry Storch and Jerry Stiller. And a lot of these guys came to the, and Abe Vigoda came to the Ferraris parties that we had for the books and they celebrated. They were thrilled to be included. And I just I got nothing but, you know, good reaction from those guys. That's not, so that was, I mean, the living guys, you know. No, I so. hear you, man. No, and, you know, honestly, again, those books are great because really you go through movies and sitcoms and stuff and it's like, oh, now I finally know who Herbie Faye is. That's fantastic. You know, and a right. guy that I've always thought was so funny for his. 
you know, 90 seconds in, in whatever television show it was. And, uh, you know, now I could put a name to it and everything. And also his real name, his real Jewish name. I just <laughs> wanted to present the, present these guys, you know, with their real name. And then, but it was, again, that was, those books were mainly about the art. And it was yeah, like man. basically showing these guys in old, old age and still they, you know, desperate to be funny. So mostly, you know, most of the portraits were close up in their, in your face. You know, them just like, and, and when I met them, it was it, basically that was true. They just wanted to like still be out there making people laugh in your face, funny, you know, doing the fires parties with them. It was hard to even like, you know, get, get a word in on the microphone when we were talking. Cause these comedians, once they have an audience, they just don't shut up or, they, you know, just like, <laughs> they just like click back into their shtick and their jokes. And it was great. You know, it's like great to see. That's, so awesome. that's what I wanted to get. That's what I wanted to capture in those in those books. That's excellent, and I'm sure Lewis Black felt very honored to be, you know, part of the pantheon now, man. That's well, he enjoyed like his portrait. He enjoyed. Lewis Lewis actually said, like, I normally don't like what I'm drawing, but I like this. So oh, you know, for whatever reason, he liked it, and I drew him like crazed, like. Uh, <laughs> look, you know, yeah, full rent. Because it was an interview with him about the the election, and he was just going nuts about Trump. Um, yeah. So I wanted to capture that, you know, his face, his, his expression. That's online. <laughs> I hear you, man. Well, I don't want to keep you, but I, I, I'm thrilled that you, you spent this time, and, and I do hope you will come back because, you know, there's there's a million more things I'd, I'd love to ask you. So when Anytime, you... John. All right. Hey, man, seriously, when the new book is out, please come back, and uh, we'll direct people to the Kickstarter. And certainly um, it's it's coming out um, this coming week. Uh, more he- yeah, more, I think more it's, Heroes it's, of the Comics. I, more here's the come. I think if you order it now, you'll get it in two days. But the official uh, release date is December sixth. December sixth, cool. yeah. So and also, uh, and pick up the first uh, volume as well because no, it's a there. There are there are amazing illustrations and paintings and and great thumbnail, but significant historical things about these uh, great golden and uh, silver age uh, creators. So I, thank I, you so I, much, John. I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> I'll leave it there. That's Drew Friedman. I hope you'll uh, check out more Heroes from the Comics and also uh, the first book, Heroes from the Comics, both from Fanagraphics. Order them today. Maybe even have your uh, local shop either order it for you or order it online. Excellent books from Drew Friedman and uh, really great conversation. Glad that he was on today. Word Balloon was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com where you'll find great books at great prices. And don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from in-stock trades. Michael Fife has uh, his uh, trade paperback for Copra. Uh, this is round four, and uh, it's 25% off, just $14.96. You can get uh, Vision Volume 2. Man, if you didn't read Tom King and Kevin uh, Walsh and their amazing story about the Vision... Uh, this is the second volume. It concludes the 12-issue series, and uh, it is uh, 45% off, $9.89. Let's just check and see what the uh, price is on uh, the first Vision volume. That book is 45% off, just $9.89. So get the full Vision story for under $20 right now in the two books at InStockTrades.com. You can also get uh, some amazing things like the Adventure Time original graphic novel, Islands, off. It's just $6.99. From Detective Comics, Volume 9, Gordon at War, featuring Pete Tomasi and Ray Fox as writers, and Scott Eaton and Fernando Passerin as the artists. It is 50% off, just $12.49. You can get the Bloodshot Reborn hardcover, Volume 1, featuring Jeff Lemire, Raul Allen, and uh, various other artists. But uh, this is the beginning of Jeff's run on Bloodshot, from Valiant, it is uh, 30% off, just $27.99. You 
do some of your holiday shopping online at InStockTrades.com, and I think you're going to find some great books at great prices. Thanks again for listening to today's Word Balloon. Uh, more coming up. I know I always say that, but uh, December has suddenly become a very roomy month for me. So, uh, And there's so many people that have contacted me and want to come on the show. So uh, strap in, because I think December is going to be a pretty active month here at WordBalloon.com. Uh, talk to you next time. Until then, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.